Hello and welcome to this week's instalment of Nucleus Investment Insights. Our attention this week turns away from the more conventional asset classes as we take a look at opportunities in the alternative sector. Alternative assets can take on many forms. Art, wine, jewellery and classic cars often spring to mind. But in more reliable markets, opportunities can also be found in private equity, agriculture and small-scale infrastructure. Whilst typically the domain of institutional investors, the current high prices of traditional assets has renewed an interest in alternatives, which often bring lower correlation and diversification benefits to portfolios in these times. With these benefits comes a degree of risk, however, due to the broad range of alternative options out there that can often suffer from sporadic market pricing, poor liquidity and lower levels of regulation. It is an area where professional guidance is highly recommended. Because of this, joining us today live in the studio for a, a lovely change, we are joined, or we are, we are very lucky to have Adrian Redlick. Adrian is founder and CEO of Melbourne-based investment house Merrick's Capital and has previously held senior roles at Citadel Investment Group and Merrill Lynch. Merrick's Capital specialises in alternative hard asset offerings with extensive investment capability and global experience spanning multiple asset classes. Adrian Redlick, Welcome to Nucleus Investment Insights. Yeah, thanks for having me and uh, good to be present in the office. Yes. It is indeed. Also here to share his thoughts on where opportunities may lie in the alternative space, I'm joined by Nucleus Wealth's Head of Investments, Damien Klassen. Hello to you, Damien. Hi, Tim. Good to have you in as well. And just a quick reminder before we get started, if you haven't already, subscribe and click on the notification bell to be notified of when we go live or have a new webinar to watch or follow us on your preferred podcast platform. We also ask if you could take a moment to click like on the video now to help our show grow. And of course, for those listening in live now, feel free to drop in your questions in the YouTube live stream chat to have them answered along the way. So let's jump into our agenda for today. It's a broad agenda and I'm sure we'll cover off on, on many other areas, but um, just to sort of keep us a little bit on track, uh, we thought we'd kick off with uh, a bit of an overview and Adrian's thoughts uh, on the crisis, vaccines, recoveries and asset classes to watch. Uh, we'll then jump into real estate. So we're looking at residential development offices uh, and perhaps a bit of a look at agriculture as well. Uh, we'll move across to debt markets. Uh, we'll round off with inflation as well, and inflation, uh, an outlook of inflation, and uh, then, of course, finish off, as we always do, on our investment outlooks and how we incorporate these themes every day here at the portfolios at Nucleus Wealth. So we might just uh, jump into an overview, gentlemen. Damien. Yeah, so <clears throat> I guess the, the main reason for getting Adrian on was we wanted to speak to somebody who's sort of um, on the ground sort of investing and, and looking at... Um, uh, some of the asset classes that we don't see. So we see all the, all the public markets and, and looking a lot at that, and we wanted to sort of really get a feel for some of these private markets, and especially um, we sort of feel as if uh, last year in particular there was a lot of pullback on terms of banks um, not wanting to lend and, and people having to step into the breach, and now there's, there's suggestions banks are starting to come back. And so, you know, that, that type of, that's sort of the reason we wanted to get Adrian on and then um, really we're trying to dig into to areas of expertise and, and stuff that he can um, he can show us. So I guess what I wanted to try and do was just to set a, a bit of background um, uh, about how you're looking at the market and, and how you're seeing sort of vaccines, whether you're seeing like a sharp bounce back, whether you think it's going to be long and slow. Just so I guess to put in context for, for readers or listeners, sorry, um, how you're going to, why you're investing the way you're investing at the moment. Yeah, yeah sure. Thanks, Damien. Um, look, our, our perspective is one around hard assets. So commercial real estate, agriculture, infrastructure, mining, 
Um, and so we're, you know, that's our focus, that's our specialty. We'll look at investing in equity, debt, um, anything related to it. So we have a broad ranging perspective on it. Um, but very much as I talk to it, we're going to be talking from um, the hard asset perspective as opposed to what's going on in the banking system related to things like Afterpay or you know, GameStop or, or, GameStop or anything yeah. of that nature. So just you know, it's worth pointing out that's our, that's our lens. Everyone's mm. got their bias and their, yeah, their yeah. perspective. And, and so you've obviously got a much longer time frame though than, than you know you can jump into GameStop and back out again before, uh, before this podcast finishes. For finish that sentence probably, uh, whereas you know you're buying assets that you, there's big transaction fees. You want to be in there for five, ten years at least. I'm thinking. Is that- yeah, and and we'll talk about it. You know, the predominance of where we've moved to over the last four or five years is actually to lend to people who are actually buying and owning and holding those assets. Mm. Um, over the journey over the last fourteen years, as you know, as Merricks, we have in fact, being owners of these type of things, um, whether they be agriculture, whether it be commercial real estate, whether it be buying listed um, entities related to that industry, we've moved to that space because there's sort of been a vacuum or a pullback really since 2015-16 of the Australian banking system. Mm. And so COVID's added a new lens to that in the sense it's hastened some of that retreat in places. Mm. Um, ironically, in others, it's actually opened the banking system up and they've been much more liberal with what they're, they're doing. And that, that's partly because some of the outcomes from the Banking Royal Commission and others have actually been unwound during COVID and actually liberated so it's actually loosened things um and that's what happens you know that's my experience you know in the u.s i was there for 10 years during the 2000s and the the banking crisis really of 2008 in my mind was actually a consequence of liberating the commercial paper market and other things post 9 11 you know so there's always a consequence politicians governments others push stimulus in a certain direction and you know often there's a there's a consequence you know half a decade decade later well, i was going to say luckily for most of the politicians it's it's, it's a it's an election cycle or two beyond when they've uh, the people who actually made the decisions so it's yeah, always uh, like a yeah. yeah look and and i think most of them are probably trying to do the right thing at the mm. time but it's sort of that they're trying to solve today's problems yep um and they do suffer from short-termism obviously by the very nature of it, and it's mm. only getting worse. Yeah. Okay. So, so as you're looking at say, as you're looking at assets at the moment, are you looking at it with a view that, um, you know, this is going to be endemic? Um, we're going to have rolling shutdowns and everything for years and years and years, or are you looking at it as, look, vaccines will come, we'll start opening up, and at some stage it'll it'll snap back, whether that's six months away or or, or you know eighteen months away or whatever the time frame is, but at some stage it'll be a be back to normal. Yeah, so so the lens, yeah, we're we're predominantly focused on lending where the banks won't lend. Yep. If I say that's the predominance, that's eighty five percent of what we're doing mm. at this point in time. And we tend to go as a investment house where we think there's a scarcity of capital. So I think to get good returns, you mm. can have a choice of trying to be the smartest person in the room and we've worked out that's not us necessarily and it's not most people mm. or you can go to a place where there's a combination of two things mm. one you have an understanding and two there's a lack of capital being provided it's yep. supply demand if there's a yeah. lack of capital being provided you tend to earn a little bit better and so we think that's ironically in the lowest risk part of the capital stack that's dead at the moment mm. but so with that lens the area we have been very active is in office hotel 
um, development mm. in the last year, which a lot of people sort of said to us, why would you go there? Surely they're COVID candidates, if you like. <laughs> Absolutely. That, yeah. was, that was actually one of the first questions because we're, we're actually filming this in a, or, um, recording this in a, in a WeWork office where, where we are and, and we just walked, and Adrian's uh, company just bought some in Auckland. We funded. funded, so, sorry, some, funded. so we funded. funded. We provided the debt for, for uh, the WeWork development in CBD in Auckland. Yep, um, and we just walked in past a bunch of empty offices. So let's <laughs> let's go to very um, you know, people working from because um, because I think there's for me I, I can see I can certainly see an argument for WeWork in terms of it being um, people downsizing from bigger offices moving into sort of WeWorks and going okay we well, don't you know it's much more flexible you know I can I can have a 10 people and, and, and have a six-person office. And then if I want to bring everyone in, because you have people working from home, and if I want to bring people in, I can scale up and scale back. And it's a short term, you know, shutdowns happen again, I can close the office down. So sure, I can see where people would want to. It's just in, in Melbourne, I think that hasn't been our experience, but I'm interested in how you how you look at the commercial property sector in, in general. Yeah, so let's, let's examine how that type of opportunity comes about as mm-hmm. a starting point. Um, you would think in a traditional landscape, you're talking about CBD um, offices. Mm. You would think that's the domain of the major banks, and Absolutely. the banks in New Zealand are the same as Australia. Yes. Effectively, the you know the, the one and the same. Mm. Um, slightly different regulator in terms of so there's some nuances, but mm. effectively, whether we're talking about New Zealand, Australia, they're they're fairly similar, and we treat them pretty much the same yep. in terms of how we approach it. Um, you would think you know, lending against office with a 15-year lease, which is what WeWorks have on, on the particular building, the banks would be lining up. Pretty good credit, really. Now WeWorks owned in large part by Japan's second biggest company. Mm. You'd think it would make sense. Now, the reality is you know, banks are pulling back for a range of reasons um, and partly driven by regulators. So a lot of there's a lot of um, press and... Uh, sort of politics played around what banks do, but in large part it's driven by what the regulators allow them to do and where they are allowed to play. And the biggest step change in the last five years, and COVID, as I said, brought a, a new shift to that, is that the regulator, rightly so in Australia, in APRA, in New Zealand, it's the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, is simply saying to banks, right, you uh, have a highly leveraged balance sheet. So look at CBA, you know, for every dollar of equity, they borrow $13 in lots of different forms, and then they online that. So if you're borrowing everyone's money, we need you to be prudent. We need to make sure the assets you're lending against are highly cash flow generated so you can pay your own interest, you can meet all those needs. Mm. Makes sense, but it hasn't always been that way. We've gone through ebbs and flows of the regulator being much more liberal. Mm. Um, But since the early 90s, where we really had the last major banking crisis in Australia and New Zealand, the regulator's done a, a pretty good job and we've sort of averted a lot of crisis, partly lucky, but you'd say you know the the run the track records there that Australia's done pretty well, and so the regulator's saying we're not so sure about these assets as a cash flowing type business. Mm. Um, we're not. There's no judgment that they're really passing on the underlying value. Mm. Us as hard asset specialists, similar to you guys, how you think of uh, asset allocation across everything, we're really focused as much on long term value. And so if we're providing $60 million of debt against a $100 million asset, it's worth $100 million. To us, we're, we're not particularly fussed whether it's worth $85 million or $115 million mm-hmm. in two years' time. We're obviously focused on... Being ha- worth 60 Worth sixty. Yeah. So it's not rocket science, yeah. right? And, and, and though, so you're taking, I'm assuming, you're, you're the first in line on these. What, 
Absolutely. Yeah. Everything we do at the moment in debt is senior secured first ranking. Mm. And the reason we do that is one, because we think we're getting outsized returns for doing that now, because yep. there's a bifurcation. If the banking system will provide that capital to you, it's incredibly cheap, mm-hmm. you know, cheaper than ever, as we all know, whether it's your own home mortgage, whether it's a business loan, a commercial real estate loan, farm loan. If you can get the money, it's incredibly cheap. Yeah. Um, if you can't get the money, there's a vacuum. There's very few providers. And so I think what we'll see in this, spa- in this space, the credit space mm-hmm. or the lending space, we're going to see the emergence in Australia and New Zealand of a very big, deep, non-banking credit lending market and I think it's going to be the alternative to equities. Mm. And there's a whole range of reasons why it hasn't emerged over the last 20, 30 years in Australia. Mm. Um, and in large part, that's because the banks were very liberal. The regulators allowed them to be liberal. So they, they provided 85 to 100% of all needs, sort of debt needs. Mm. That's shifted and changed with the banking system. The second is the tax structure in Australia is franking credits. Yes. So franking credits... And we can talk about expected returns in portfolios and the way that you guys, yep. obviously, are dealing with your clients. Can, the big, can I, can you want to cut I me hold, off of the past wanna, here. No, no, yeah. no, I just want to hold that one because I, I want to come back to, on the first one for it. Yes. Because um, I'm, I'm quite interested in that. Um, so Freudberg's come out saying, look, we should, the, you know, the responsible lending, we shouldn't have to worry about it. So it looks like on the consumer side, they're trying to say, let's free, let's free things up. You know, we don't want to, we don't want to, I know, I know there was this Royal Commission, but that was like years ago. And so now we need to, we need to pump more money out. Whereas, and so it's from, I guess from an outsider looking at it, it feels as if the regulators are trying to open things up more, but you you think, you're saying that you don't think in the commercial, um, that's the case. Well, I think, I think there's a couple of elements. So, you know, if you, we met with some of the banks on a recently and we meet with them periodically, mm-hmm. they're probably the biggest referrer of business to us. I think yep. their clients, they want to solve their problem, but it's not suited to them. Mm-hmm. Go and see Merrick's or someone like Merrick's. Yep. Um, but what is sort of is endemically shifted is the banks have more tier one equity. We all know that. They've raised more capital, but how they can apply that and where they can use it is limited. Mm-hmm. Mortgages for individuals is not limited. That is by far their dominant space. So what um, the government has done is really is guiding how they can lend against their predominant lending practice Mm. as opposed to where we're providing capital in sort of an institutional world against office buildings, agriculture, power plants. Um, That's not as in terms of responsible lending is not monitored in most of that Except agriculture, which is a bit different. No, no, yeah, no, I get, I get that, but I guess I feel as if, and 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 this is my, I guess I feel as if I've got a misconception here because I, I guess I've sort of felt like, well, if they're winding back in this area, they're probably trying to wind back in in all areas for the banks and just let them go. But what you're saying is, it seems to be much more focused, obviously, just on that mortgage side, and they're not looking at changing rules in. Or, well, I th- I guess I, in no, I, th- I think there's elements of the banks themselves. You know, complained if you if you like yeah. um, that the process was too challenging. They couldn't actually get money out to people right. to meet the standards that were post royal commission mm. um, that APRA had introduced. And so I guess it's always extremes. You know, you get a very aggressive reaction to a royal commission. They go to extremes, and probably where we are now is somewhere in between the looseness that was there 
prior and where we are today. Um, And it's a balance. You know, governments, again, as I said at the outset, react to today's problem Mm. and they say we need to get money out. And so there's two aspects in terms of lending that most people um, perceive, Mm. the average person on the street. One is, can I get a mortgage? And Mm. the other is people for business. Um, And so the other thing that's happened is the Reserve Bank of Australia has provided a three-year term facility to the banks of in excess of $200 billion Mm. um, at 0.1%. So the banks actually are flooded with cash if things fall within their framework that they can lend. So Mm. we really bifurcated that the banks have a lot of money that they want to put out because the government's saying put it out and they're saying, well, let's try and use it because it's the cheapest money we'll ever see, the Mm. most profitable money they'll ever see. Um, And so they're trying to put it out and and push it out. So you'll hear of lots of different opportunities, whether it be in commercial real estate, whether it be mortgages for individuals, where there's incredibly cheap money, people borrowing sub 2%. Mm. And that makes sense. If you think about the banks, you know, they generally have a 2% net interest margin spread. So they make 2% borrowing yep. and on lending. If they borrow at 0.1, mm. you know, around 2% gets them close to that, that level. Mm. Um, what's going to be interesting is when that um, term facility from the Reserve Bank mm. of Australia actually ends in a couple of years' time. Can you see that actually happening, though? Can, can you see that being so on, on track? I don't understand what you're saying. Yeah. Is there an end to it? Yeah. Well, that, that's the, the world, yeah. isn't it? And, and that is the world we all live in, that mm. everything we look at today based on money that costs you virtually nothing is mm. cheap. Yeah. But it's all based on the premise that investors around the world in government bonds, right? And let's start there because governments can act as long as everyone else gives them their money yep. at, for nothing, mm. then they can keep doing what they're doing. Mm. If the world turns on its head and said, we don't feel comfortable, and we've had a little bit of... Um, upheaval in the in the treasury markets in the last few weeks that suddenly saw a sell-off in yep. tech stocks and long duration. So we know there's going to be wobbles and, and shakes, but as long as the world has confidence mm. that mm. the emperor still has clothes, yeah. We're all we're all good, and, and that's uh, look. We've on this show we've got a few times we've brought it up, but you know it's, it's the I always get the the terms wrong. But I think I'll have all the letters there, but maybe not in the right order. The LT. LTRO? No, I'm yes. using a letter. TLTRO. Yes. <laughs> um, in, yeah, where, uh, you know, that you can basically, the French and German banks are lending at five, uh, 0.5% and and the central bank's chipping in 1%. And you're like, basically, just a minute, for every dollar that somebody actually pays for it, they subsidize $2 to the banks. To, yeah. In order to, and that's where, yeah, our, our hypothesis is, look, unless we see a sustained fiscal spend, you know, really to, the, to, to try and um, get the... Um, inequality back sorry more equality back is that that's where we're headed you know Mm. yeah and and it will endure as long as there's no inflation hyperinflation and that's why everyone is worried about the late 60s early 70s that was nixon induced right Mm. where he put a lot of pressure he he fired central bankers replaced them with others Mm. there's a history and it's happened and you know the u.s there's so much literature and language so it's easy everyone points to it because we've got so much data but it's happened in many places around the world mm. where it does get out of control but that's the one thing where people say well governments can keep doing what they want mm. unless some exogenous force force them to do otherwise and inflation is the obvious one because we've seen it before mm. but it will be something exogenous that, that mm. shakes it up and whether it's a, a virus or something else of that nature that could could come along but mm. To come back to the the thesis of what we're doing, and we talked about the WeWorks building in yes. Auckland, we're funding, we've funded quite a few office buildings and development office buildings since coronavirus struck. And the rationale for us is 
there's a lack of capital because it fits outside the current box for banks. Mm. And if there's no one else or very few others that will provide funding, you tend to get overpaid for what you do. Now, in the world of risk return, which every investment advisor always uses the framework saying, let's find good risk-adjusted returns. Yep. For us, we've found that actually in the lowest risk part of the capital stack, which is being the bank, right, as yep. opposed to being the equity owner or taking some sort of funky structured participation. Mm. And that's because we're able to earn often high single-digit interest rates mm. by facilitating the development of great assets or facilitating people buying these assets. And we like to say you know, we're there for a good time, not a long time, in the sense we're, we're there to help people transition mm. and then go back to the banking system. Um, and so that you know, that's our job. And so we've really pivoted our business with a focus on hard assets. Why would I own it when I don't have a crystal ball that tells me where the world's going because mm. there's lots of things which are scary out there Yep. despite markets keep marching upwards. And, and, and pricing's right up there. It is. I'm assuming if... if you know, if equity prices halved or went down eighty percent overnight, now all of a sudden there's more incentive for you to to get back into equity investing and less for debt investing. Yeah. yeah, correct. But but look, it's it's quite simple. Is if you can earn eight percent return mm. being in debt, I don't know so that equity markets are going to give you that. Mm. So then then it's sort of the world of alternates where you know Tim, you introduced the the topic is okay. Alternates is a reason. Yeah, the space, this is the reason you head down that space on occasion for parts of your portfolio mm. is that it's things that can't be accessed just by going to the stock market or the bond market. Mm. And so you go into it. But in our case, what comes with it is probably not a complex investment thesis, mm. senior lending against real assets mm. that probably go up if inflation kicks in. So you're thinking, oh, it's actually got a good buffer around it. Mm. But how do I access it? How do I hold it? And through time, these asset classes work pretty well, but also through time, there's a litany of blow-ups and funds that people didn't understand, which is where there's always the fear. So transparency, understanding. And so it's the access of them which becomes more important than actually the investment thesis in many ways. Yeah, well, yeah. How, well how exciting it is. It's just, um, yeah, it's, well, just say, it's got to be reliable and, and be easily accessed. And, and there's lots of uh, alternative assets that, you know, I've seen over time, and they're usually the ones that have blown up, and they're usually the ones that um, some financial advisors getting 10% to stick their client into it or something like that. And or big tax breaks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. it's just like, yeah. Whereas, as you said, you know, the, ass the assets themselves um, may or may not be good, but it's, if, you, if you stick it around a structure that's not good, then, then you're going to, yeah. You're yeah, up and, and, and no I, think, I think, you know, a key part, one of the things you mentioned is a big part of our client base is introduced through independent wealth managers, right? Mm. And this isn't, you know, I'm not, not just because I'm sitting in your office do I, yeah. I plug it, but I think what's happened, and again, a, a fallout of, of regulation and the way the system's moving is that, you know, independent wealth managers tend to assess these things where they're aligned with their clients mm. more so today than maybe when we started 15 years ago. Mm. And so they're assessing it just based on its merits. I feel that more than, than I did 15 years ago, mm. yep. um, which is an important part mm. of, of the cycle. Mm. Um, but look, there's always people that will do the wrong thing. And obviously, we've got the fallout from Greenshill at the moment, yeah, which we can, you know, which we can talk about because they do lend against a lot of hard assets, also. Okay, well, yeah, I'm putting a pin in a few things for that. I do want to come back to those ones as well. So, okay, so we spoke a little bit about so the banks sort of pulling out, and you're, and you're saying that this sector. Before I cut you off about the franking credit, so you're thinking this sector is going to grow, 
from yes. from that perspective, just because a, a little bit of an absence of capital, which, um, and then and 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 also because um, banks are just highly incentivized to do more, more and more mortgage lending, and so they're going to do this. Or sorry, they, they could. They've been controlled. I mean, banks exactly. will do you yeah. know, things where they think it makes sense based on capital usage. So you know, yeah. a bank, yeah, the Treasury Department of a bank. Their job is to optimise how much capital they have to set aside against each loan, how much they have to borrow. Mm. And the things that we're doing, uh, there's quite it's punitive hard. charges for them, so mm. they don't do it. Yep. Um, but th- what's happening in Australia is we're actually going back to where we were maybe in the 80s and early 90s where finance companies, non-banks, etc., played a much bigger part. And that is akin to what exists in the US, in Europe, most of the world. So in the US... Yeah, some quote that you know, half of lending is done by non-banks. Right. So like a, a building society perspective. Yeah, in, so, in some ways they are. You know, it's yeah. a modern a modern form of that. Um, I guess the difference is funds such as ourselves and some of our competitors is we're not levered. We're not borrowing money from people and on lending it. We are just, as you do, we just have one role and that's to represent the investor to put their money and oh, ours yeah, outside, yeah, you know, alongside them to put it out and get the best return. So mm-hmm. we're not we're not leveraging it. We're not we're aligned with them. Whereas I think building societies, finance companies, it's sort of how cheaply can I borrow money from you, and then how push how, it out the door. Yeah, how, yeah. how much can I push it out the door for, and yeah. what's my spread? It's a different. It's very different. And so the issuance of bonds and things like that from those non-regulated entities often is where problems occur because there's a lack of alignment as well. Mm-hmm. Whereas with us, it's if it's good for my dollar and it's aligned, you're aligned with me, it tends to drive a better incentive yeah. and alignment. Okay, now Franken credits. Yes. Yes. So, you know, yeah. So look, uh, you know, one of the things that struck me, I moved to the US in the late '90s, 2000. I got there and I was sort of this bifurcation. Australia operated in a certain way. I worked for Merrill Lynch, mm. very focused on the equity markets at the time here, and then I worked for them there and advising pension and endowments the big ones um, in that part of the world and sort of this bifurcation. Why are they doing so much municipal bonds? Why are they doing so much debt? Why are they doing so much credit? And in Australia, it's non-existent. Everyone just wants to own the stock market and negative gear housing, right? That was, you know, if you simplistically how much... And it's been a great trade, right? right. What a great place to have your money and probably still is in large part. But the big driver of it in the US... Municipal bonds, as an example, which are local council-like, they're tax-free, the interest. Mm. So therefore, highly tax-advantaged. Mm. Dividends, on the other hand, in the US, and they did change the law while I was there, mm. were very punitive from a tax perspective. In Australia, we have the opposite. Franking mm. credits mm. is you know, an incredible gift relative to the rest of the world. We're at the ext- extreme. Mm. Um, and so when you think about equity risk premium or equity return, Generally, the best forecast of any stock market around the world is the 10-year bond rate plus 4 or 5%, right? Mm-hmm. Equity risk premium. Yep. In Australia, we're able to cheat that a little bit mm. because if you gross up your dividends, yep. you yeah. tend to get a, a bit, bit more. more. Yeah. So, and, and I'd even say, you know, my, my story of this, my, my first, one of my first jobs in, you know, back in the early 90s, I, I was looking at, I was a banking analyst and looking at the, um, for a broker, I was looking at Suncorp notes mm-hmm. and I had there was two different ones one's had franking one didn't have franking and I was trying to explain to the retail uh, one of the retail guys on the desk that um, no no but look if you gross up you know this one pays you 8% but if you gross up the franking credits on this you only get 7 so you should just take the, the you know the other yeah. ones because even with the tax benefit and he was like yeah yeah but these ones are franked yeah 
And I was like, yeah, but you, even if you gross it up, and, he, and we both walked away thinking each other was an idiot because he's just going, my clients want frank dividends. They don't care. They're getting a lower net return. Yeah. They just want the check back from the government. Yeah. <laughs> and we've been indoctrinated in this country that mm. that's the pathway mm. and so much product, and I use the word product rather than investment, by mm. banks yes. has been created to take advantage of that. Mm. But contrast that to debt, right, just investing in debt. Um, debt, you, there's no capital gain. It's all interest. Interest is taxed at the highest possible rate of any entity. So yep. sure, if you're in a super fund, it's lower, but it's still going to be the maximum tax rate. Individually, your highest tax rate. Mm. Capital gains on the other end of the perspective yeah. is obviously Distant. more attractive. So you've got capital gains and franking. Mm. For debt, you've got a very punitive tax structure. So it's not just about risk return of the underlying, it's actually the after-tax return in Australia that's so much more extreme. Mm. And so what that means for us today is that this capital formation in debt really is not done by super funds, by investors in large part. Mm. You haven't had an industry that's been created to go find the loan, to write the loan, manage the loan, Mm. manage investor money in large part because that bifurcation's been... It's quite so, extreme. And so do you think there's a change? Or, uh, I mean, there no. is. And the, okay. the change is that the cost of that debt mm. is gone up, right. right? So the returns we're able to garner right now because of this shift and the, the lack of capital applied to that area mm. means the returns are high. And you say yeah. they're artificially high in Australia relative to the rest of the world because right. there's a lack of capital. Yeah. If you contrast that now to we have such a deep stock market culture where ETFs and things like that, you'd argue now, well, hang on, people are getting a bit excited. Mm. You know, they're going to hold things on a 3% yield or a 2% yield mm. at massive massive earnings multiples the like. You go, maybe we've got too much liquidity that's pushed there mm. um, and not enough that's gone to other parts. Mm. And those other parts, tax and the ability to write loans and access them mm. is the barrier to entry yep. at this point. So we need a shift and a change and that's... What's going on? We're not giving up franking credits, though. We found that no. out last elections. Yeah, no, yeah. no, and, and, and yeah. that's why also, but a lot of our investors are offshore institutional clients, right, uh, who are happily right. lending. You look at the big credit yeah. funds around the world yeah. and those participating here in Australia also, yeah. it's not necessarily domestic money that's driving. So, so they're so, effectively arbitraging by saying, yeah, yeah exactly. Australian investors don't want to, are worried about their after tax and so therefore, yep. yeah, I can earn a higher return because they'll... they'll yeah. An Australian investor wants... They're stealing our fat yield. margins. Yeah. Because <laughs> we don't want them. <laughs> well, that's right. Yeah. That's pretty much right. Um, and also then introduce COVID that these margins have stayed wider for longer because foreigners, to get to Australia, to do due diligence, write loans, it's a barrier. Right, yeah. And the follow-on to that as well is, you know, we keep seeing more and more about Covenant Light and how many, how much... Um, and what I mean by that for, for listeners is is, is that um, when you write a loan, there's certain rules around the loan and what you can do and what you can't do. And um, they've just been getting uh, lighter and lighter. So so there's less less constraints on the companies more, over time, um, which means it's more likely the companies can do, you know, you've lent the money for one purpose and it ends up doing something else or whatever it is. Yeah. And so that's obviously a concern um, if you're just going across the entire market, especially the, probably the high end, high yield end of it. Um, I guess your thoughts on... Well, that's a phenomena of US-European markets, which credit spreads have come in. So liquid markets, things that are traded bonds. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen cov- what they say, cov-light yep. type bonds. 
because basically if you want a slightly higher return, don't ask the company who's borrowing it to have as many requirements or as many restrictions. It's that mm. simple. Mm. That doesn't really exist in Australia in a major way um, be- because we're not there yet. We don't have the evolution of the market and the right. banking system. So most of the loans we write and some of our competitors write, they tend to look exactly, they're almost the same documentation that the commercial banks use. Right, yeah. okay. So the, the only, you know, the difference may be you know, we won't, we don't require the same income coverage, but we require the same valuation coverage, right? You know, that's a choice because we're using unlevered money. So yep. we don't, unlike a bank is highly levered, they need to service their own debt. Mm. We're not so worried about, are you producing X income tomorrow? All we really care about is if we lend you 60 million is the asset worth 100 million in two years time, are we really comfortable with that? Yep. That's our focus. And so it's more akin to the equity investor right. or the stock market investor. It's yeah, the general so, so would you wealth say, industry, and and yeah, so and 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 I guess what I'm trying to get to for this is, you think that's more of that's not just you guys saying you're going to be quite strict on the covenants. That is a, a generally an Australian thing. You think that the I, I don't think it's are, necessary. I don't think the borrowers are pushing for that to the as same degree. Okay. Um, I think where you will see it first is in the um, corporate cash flow lending. Mm. So business lending. Yep. That's where, and, and so that Covlight term is often used and re, where it really emanates is from private equity borrowers. Yep. So they, they buy a company, they go and borrow money from credit funds mm. and they tend to be Covlight and structured and super highly leveraged. And mm-hmm. so that's where the high yield market, the junk bond market really has emanated. Yep. But we've got to a point where you look at the US in particular and, and people are lending money at 4%, 5% to super highly lev- leveraged yeah, you know, junk, right? Could, and could, could lose ninety five percent of your money. Yeah, yeah, you could. You, well, yeah. I don't know the debt you'll lose ninety five percent, but well. you could lose twenty. But if you're making yeah. four yeah, and losing right. twenty, it's the wrong risk reward. Yeah. <laughs> Our view is if we're making eight and something goes wrong and you lose a one or two percent, that's the right risk reward in a portfolio, not yeah. not the other way. So I think we're early on, um, and to put in the context, you know, the, the four major banks in Macquarie and maybe you throw in Rabo because they do so much agri. It's a $4 trillion balance sheet amongst the commercial banks. Mm. And we think you know, that the non-bank sector is probably in the $100 billion to $200 billion space. Yep. Yeah, and probably gets to $500 million, Yeah, Sorry, billion. Um, $500 billion. Yep. They're such big numbers that we're, you yeah. know, we're always talking about, but $500, $600 billion. Mm. And because the non-bank space is unlevered, right, banks can easily swell their balance sheet because to, get, to lend $100 billion, they only need ten billion of equity. That's right. Yeah. Yes. For us to lend a hundred billion as an industry, we need a hundred billion. Mm. So it's a massive shift in transfer. So it's not easily solved. And then the other aspect of it is, you can't just ring up your friendly broker and say, "Buy me a million shares of CBA," and you suddenly grow your portfolio. You actually have to find the loan, underwrite the loan, go through the whole process, and so you're replicating the banking system. Yes. And that's the that's one of the shifts in the change. So. For a whole range of reasons, we've moved, you know, we've liquidated all our equity portfolios. We've moved to this space because we think if you can earn 8 to 10% return, we think, yeah, yeah, we think, you know, you're getting the equity market return plus franking <laughs> and without the same risk. And so we think, well, you know, competition will increase over time, but because it's hard, you, it takes yeah. more than three guys in a Bloomberg terminal to compete. Yep. 
we hope, right? And this is, I know, acknowledge the bias. We hope it endures much longer. Yeah. Um, and we can well, keep reducing. And, and it gives me a little bit more, comp- like, because I, I look at that, um, you know, the US, for example, and to see record levels of, of corporate debt versus GDP and the, all this stuff about cover light, you're just like, well, I don't know when there's going to be a problem, but there's going to be a problem sometime in the next, whatever, five years, score, you know. A- but, absolutely. Um, but it sounds as if, um, uh, when I look back at the Australian one, and, and I guess coming back to the property side, you know, we saw in 2007, 2008, a lot of the property guys were all levered at 60, 70%. And so they had a lot of problems when the, the downturn happened. This time it was more like 30 or 40%. So there's not as much of a, a risk in there. And it sounds as if the covenants, so it sounds as if if we're looking for dangers in the Australian economy, it's probably not on the corporate debt side. It's probably more likely to be somewhere else. Yeah. yeah. I'd say the biggest danger is um, people not doing what's advertised on the box. Yeah. That And that is... That is as soon as you get into something that's less opaque, and sometimes yeah. that is um, associated with alternates, mm. that's where the issue. And so, you know, we obviously have a big supply chain lender in the world right now with a problem. Yes. And yeah, that's clearly the biggest mm. issue is... So actually, you know, do you want to give a little bit of background for anyone who hasn't uh, been following sure, the Greensill? Sure. Um, you know, Greensill, which is you know, an Australian-based company, but it's become global, mm. um, provides supply chain funding. So what that really means is they'll provide debt against people's receivables. In, there's lots of complexity to it and different things they do, but that means if you're owed, you, know, you sell a product to BHP and BHP owes you a million dollars and they'll pay you in three months' time, mm-hmm. as a supply chain lender, I lend you money against, you know, I might lend you 900000 of the million mm-hmm. to, you know, BHP's good for it. Yep. But the reality is this gets bigger and bigger Many of the receivables are not from BHP. They're from lots of different smaller companies. Mm. And what's happened with Greensill is many things, but what's obvious from the outside is that the insurance industry's changed and all of these receivables were supposedly insured. Mm. And it appears that many of them were no longer insured. Mm. And there seems to be a disparity between what Greensill yeah, suggested that, you know, that they were insured and what the investors in them, being Credit Suisse and others, thought they were. So mm. so what is on the box saying, if it was insured and wrapped, not a problem. Mm. But if it changes and you're suddenly doing something which is a misrepresentation, yes. and that's that's the you know, that's the history of mm. banking finance. And you can un- you know, you can wander into these things where maybe insurer turned up one day and said, Oh, we can't insure for the next month. They go, Oh well, will leg it, will hope that you come back, which they shouldn't have done. <laughs> well, and then they, the whole industry falls and the insurance industry yeah. changed. So. And, and, the other, and the other factor as well in Greensill is um, one client, um, which seemed, it was, was 50% of their book or something like that. I think, yeah, that? which is crazy. Yeah. Mm. It's like, well, on many fronts, you know, the groups providing them with funds, mm. you, you know, the investment banks and others who put all their clients into it, you've got to ask the question going, mm. you know, what were you doing? right due yep. diligence mm. um and then just the management of it themselves you know mm. how uh, you know that yeah. that extreme so it's you know they're they that's no different to any equity manager saying you know i'm going to uh put 50 percent of my money into tesla correct yeah yeah and yeah. sure enough you know they've had a great they had a great year last year and massive yeah. you know performance and all that sort of thing but yeah. you know it hasn't been such a great month the last month has it if no, you're in absolutely you own tesla do you think it's a one-off do you think there's there's more green sills out there, or do you think this is a this is 
Um, well, no, I think it's human know. nature, right? Yeah. That's uh, that's history says it's not a one-off. But you're asking, is it endemic okay. in yeah. this sector so, right now? Yep. I don't know. Well, I guess yeah. the issue, I guess I'm interested in is, um, is this something? This seems to be. Okay, how can I put this one? Okay, come back to the the financial crisis, and you, and you had these mortgage. Um, all these mortgages being lent on a certain uh, business model and then all of a sudden the, the business models were, okay, this isn't working anymore and one by one the mortgage funds all started falling over and, and the capital dried up and, and next thing you know you're in a, in a financial crisis. I guess what I'm trying to work out is it doesn't seem that Greensill's in the similar boat where, you know, all of a sudden all trade finance stops. Um, uh, that, you know, because I guess what I'm saying is it, to me, if, if all trade finance stopped tomorrow, yes, we're, we're in a financial crisis and, and it's obviously hard for, for central banks to get back in. Could this be the domino or is this just one player that's... Un- unlikely. Yeah, M- yeah, most trade finance seems... comes from banks. Yeah. It's unlikely to be an issue. Mm. Um, these guys were probably pushing the boundaries um, mm. and earning a slightly high return for it, which was fine, but it had an insurance wrapper around it. Yep. There's a lot of export finance, trade finance, mm. all those sort of things, which is not our market, mm. but relies on insurers to provide a credit wrap, right? And that's how people tend to get comfortable. Yep. Part of that is people that invest in that space are kind of outsourcing their risk management to an insurer, which in itself is is problematic. Um, and so well, that, that, especially as you said, that you could say, you can turn around and go, yeah, I'll give these guys a bunch of money because it's insured. And then the insurance guy, six months later, goes, you know what, I'm not going to insure that anymore. And you're all sort of going, you're left high dry out. <laughs> well, well, it's always the yeah. issue. You know, the world changed. It was a good idea at the beginning and it was a good idea for the last decade and it got too big and mm. the nature of the world changed. Mm. Um, yeah, and that's, that's your job, right? That's your job to understand, like for your clients, which space, where's crowded, where are people pushing too hard? Mm. Um, and that's the general, the general nature of it. Mm. But I don't think, think Greensill's the forebearer of lots of well, supply of chain finance it, yeah, issues. So it's, yeah, yeah. It's, not, it's not an endemic problem in the supply chain finance. It's more likely just to be... The, the endemic um, problem in the space is the insurers don't want to insure the space. Yeah. So it's not actually that people have bad credit books. Mm. It's actually that if a system is built where it requires in, insurers to provide it and insurers who have been under pressure from many different events around the world say, we don't want to provide this type of insurance. And the falling interest rates are affecting them obviously as well. That's a, Correct. So, so they can't generate a return and mm. so therefore they can't put their premiums to work, yep. which is their business model. Mm. Um, so that, that's, that's an issue. So what you can see is suddenly business, right? And you think about Australia, how many businesses in Australia rely on export finance or you know, factoring or receivable funding from banking system and other? If the insurers aren't there, that's a problem. It's not Greensill. Greensill didn't create this problem. It's yeah. probably Greensill was probably a, you know, suffered from insurance put, coming pulling back. Mm-hmm. But what that will mean is the price at which Greensill offered that factoring debt was was probably low relative to where it needs to be. Mm-hmm. So as an investor, the opportunity is to come in and to invest in space now it's dislocated mm-hmm. and you can take security, first ranking security over that type of lending, which again, just to be clear, it's not what we do. So yeah. it's not but it's the nature of go into a market, it's dislocated. Greensill were getting paid 3% or the provider of it who's going to come in now is probably going to get paid 8% Mm. and they're going to impose all of these rules Mm. that weren't being applied. And that's the nature of, you know, that that is where alternates as an industry Mm. has been 
in large part, has done really well for decades. You know, it's that that ability to move to the space where there's a dislocation. Yeah. Find the value. Um, find the value and go there. You know, if you go there after there's a problem or there's a vacuum of capital, mm. you can actually have much tighter covenants and much tighter rules. And yeah. so... Whereas six months ago, trying to be the next player in to compete with them by offering 2.9% rather than 3% is not... Yeah. Correct. It's not a good market in there. Correct. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've got a quick one, um, and I'll just jump back. Uh, so, obviously, doing a bit of research on, on your firm, Adrian, um, you've got a bit of coverage in the ag- agricultural space, and obviously, I think, um, and in my experience, when you're talking to high net worth clients, you'll typically find more ag- agricultural for, um, I think, for the alternate reasons. Um, it'd be great to sort of get your view on... Uh, perhaps, yeah, or some, some background on, on what you've been doing in that space and I guess your view for the future. We've had a bit of a, a wet summer. Sometimes that, that might indicate a, a good few years in agriculture. Yeah, so a couple, of, a couple of good points there. The tailwinds in Australia for agriculture are very good. The tailwinds for agriculture, agriculture globally are quite poor. So right. the rest of the world has actually, and I'm using a broad brush yeah. approach when I say the rest of the world, but South America... North America, Russia, Ukraine, uh, Chinese plains to some degree, the big fr- food bowls of the world have actually had a tough year or so. So there's been less production of food and fibre um, and so that's driven commodity prices higher whereas Australia that came off a drought had a fantastic year and so actually has had good production and receiving great prices and dams are full which means we've probably got good water allocation for a year or two. So the forward look is, is relatively good at this point in time. Um, do you think, is, is some of that uh, su- uh, supply chain disruption in terms of um, you know, shutdowns and lockdowns, couldn't have as many people working or, or things like that in overseas? Or, or well, it's certainly not? true in Australia. So just the, a, a little bit of history from our, our perspective. We have been very active in the space since the day Merix was formed. It's a mm. passion of a number of the, the founders, yeah. um, the food supply chain. During 2007-8, when we first started, we were on the back of a drought in Australia and we bought a whole series of farms because people were selling what we deemed to be cheaply because of a drought. We held them and we sold them six, seven, eight years later and we did well out of them. But it was a miserable ride, to be honest. (laughs) Like agriculture, managing agricultural Mm -hmm. assets is really challenging. Mm -hmm. And so... One of the, you know, there's a number of reasons for it. You're dealing with weather, so it's very unpredictable. You're dealing with global commodity prices and FX, Mm. which sort of deal with it. And then the hardest piece is, like anyone that's had any business, managing people is the hardest piece of any business, you know, the human interaction. Mm. But put people into more difficult, challenging environments, remote locations, Mm. the challenges that regional Australia faces, and it adds all sorts of complexity to it. And so... For us, you know, we sort of, again, it's been a little bit as a, of a gift as an investor where we have, a, we have a team of people who manage farms for lots of different groups. Mm. We pulled back out selling assets ourselves, so our funds don't actually own farms anymore. Mm. But we thought, wow, we get to actually lend to a space we understand, mm. but we don't actually have to manage them, Gosh. which was a, a joy. But where we believe, you know, and there is a wave of, of money, you know, and people raising funds to buy farms and they have a view on agriculture. When you look at the returns, they're predicting, you know, maybe 3%, 4% income mm. and it varies between 3 and sort of 5% capital growth. So pretty traditional. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but it's highly variable what you know, what they're mm. going to achieve. So we're we're happy to have those partners, and we're happy for big pension funds and others around the world to come in and be pumping money into what Australia desperately needs is investment in that agri supply chain. Mm. Um, but we're happy to be the lender because we've got you know we've got a few war stories <laughs> right. to tell around it. So our view is we're very active and we don't see a lot of competition from outside the banking sector. Mm. Whereas in commercial real estate. There's a lot more competition to lend. Right. In agriculture, we don't see as much. And as I say, that it seems like NAB got beat up a fair bit for um, in the Royal Commission for you know, pulling farms off farmers or whatever. And so I'm, I'm not sure if that means they're sort of pulling back in, in their yeah, space no. as well. No, no doubt. New Zealand yeah. in particular, New Zealand and, and Australia. So between the two countries, the commercial banks have around $130 billion of agricultural debt. Mm. Um, our estimation is they probably need to give up 30, 40 billion of that because it's not suited. Mm. They're not suited to weathering a drought. Right. You know, it's, if, you need, if you need interest every year mm. and your customer, the borrower, has a drought every fourth year, mm. so they're a bit boom bust, yeah. you need to have something which is a bit more durable, which is you're not lending to them with your own highly leveraged balance sheet. Mm. So it's challenging. I think it's challenging for the banking system to provide every loan to the space. Yep. The Royal Commission is definitely an issue, you know, post-Royal Commission for the banks. Mm. Um, and look, I'm, I'm the first to stick it to the, the banks, you know, where, where it suits me, right? But I've got to say, I think what the banks have done for a lot of the farming industry has actually been incredible. Like if it was you or I, if I lent you... If I lent you $500,000 and you bought a farm for a million dollars and you turned up and I said, you've got to pay my interest and you've got to repay me, mm. and I then turn around and say, you're evil, I mean, I think most would be like, I just did it in good faith. I didn't do anything wrong. Mm. Um, and I think the banks have actually been willing to facilitate all sorts of things for well, the agri industry. But the media loves the story where, where I go, oh, you know, my great-great-great-grandfather bought this land and we've been on it for whatever and the bank's going to kick me off. And as you said, it plays really... The media loves to play that story. Sure. Yeah. And if I was yeah. the borrower, I would say that too, right? Because yeah. you're desperately trying to hang on in a very unfortunate situation. But yeah. it brings us to the issue around COVID in general and what the banking sector and governments in terms of the relief that's been provided... Mm. Um, I think it's been pretty generous, right, in terms of general commercial terms. And, and so it should be when the federal government's lending you $200 billion at point one, you need to then provide a lot of accommodation somewhere else. So there's a bit of an offset mm. to all of that. But in talking to the banks, there's very few loans that still sit in that space where they're not being serviced and they're not performing. I mean, there's right. sectors, tourism, mm. disaster, right, like it's a real problem. Yep. But most, and, and there'll, people can name a few others, but... Um, the banks actually the performance of their loan book is is been really good. Um, I'm going to do this as a very slight diversion. Um, so the um, federal government said they're going to lend 40 billion to the uh, small business to small businesses and ended up lending two, I think. Um, in terms of that, do you think that was uh, the banks just didn't want to lend to that sector? Is that is that the? Yeah. Look, I think the banks will still only lend if they think it's a good loan, mm. right? That, so the banks will, the banks want to lend mm. if it's a no-brainer, right? That's the yeah, space yeah. they operate in. So to get there in, you know, in small business, it's, it's hard, mm. but it's also hard in the sense the certainty around cash flow lending is, is more challenging than if you turn up and you say, look, I've bought this million-dollar home, mm. um, you know, will you lend me 
700,000 and look, I've got a job, it's pretty easy. Yeah, right? yeah. They're well suited to, to actually make an assessment, have your crystal ball out and say, wow, you know, you're a metal extruder based in Western Sydney. What's the outlook for your business? Mm. And I'm going to lend quickly. Not not that easy. No. And have they lost the skills, do you think? Like, so they did, was it just that the, the, the government called upon the banks to sort of provide a bit of a screening element to, you know, and obviously the government was putting in half the, in half yeah. the, the protection um, and then the banks just sort of potentially fell apart because they'd, they'd lost the ability to quickly size up a business or lost well, the skills I think, perhaps? As well? I think every, every bank is working at home. It's pretty yeah. hard to do small business lending when you work from home. Okay. Like I, I think the working from home phenomena for you know, for big businesses such as banks, accounting practices, our experience is the service that we get and provide for them is it struggles on large part. It's easy to deal with, as you guys would know, your existing client base who you have a deep relationship with, you can continue to provide great service. To facilitate new customers, which is a new small mm. business lending, it's really difficult. In you a need, time of duress as well. Well, you need yeah. to be out there. You need to be on their premise. You need to touch and feel it. That's that's traditional SME lending. And so it's difficult. Yep. Okay. Mm. Um, developers. So I guess what we heard, what we had been hearing was that, you know, that banks just completely pulled back from that space and, you know, a bit of a struggle for developers. Um how are things looking now? What's, what's the state yeah, of play in that So you need to, again, bifurcate the, the space they're developing in. Mm. Um, let's t- when most people think of developers, they think of apartments, right? Yep. That's the, the average person listening, would, would that's where they would go to. If we go back to 2015, 16, that was for us the most fertile opportunity. The banking system pulled back. There was APRA uh, and the Reserve Bank and the government were rightly looking at apartment pricing, mm. foreign investors, a very heated market. And so we spent the last three or four years with a retrace in terms of banks lending to developers. Mm. Um, so COVID certainly didn't play any impact because it was sort of done and dusted, this this retrace. Yep. And so what we saw through that process is we saw governments introduce all sorts of barriers to foreign buyers buying off the plan apartments. So mm. that market dried up and disappeared. Mm. We saw investor borrowing become quite challenging even for Australians so they were reluctant to buy off the plan and yep. also and so we've ended up with an, a, a housing market and an apartment market that's predominantly owner occupied predominantly I mean everyone will be able to point to friends that are still accumulating some investment properties but in large part it's an owner occupied market and that market has been is bifurcated into two in December January so the most recent data we have we had near records new applications for single-family homes. That market is booming. House and land development is absolutely booming. Mm, And so that is, again, a big area for non-bank lenders and banks. Um, We're seeing lots of sales of house lots, near record levels, homeowner grants, first homeowner grants, home builder grants, regional home buyer grants, Mm. and then a backlash from COVID saying, I don't want to live in an urban 50-storey building, mm. I actually want a house and backyard. a bit of a backyard. Yep. And so that backlash has sort of pushed a lot of people to that that space. And regionally, you know, we're seeing mm. outside of Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, we're seeing the regional push. So that market is um, – and so there there is a fair mix of borrowers that just can't get access to banks that still need it from non-banking. and But it's also a good place for banks because sales – to consumers, so house lots and and new homes, 
are pre-sold. If there's really good pre-sales, it, it fits within the banking system. And I'm guessing as well, it's also, you know, if you've got 50 lenders, sorry, 50 borrowers who have all borrowed a million dollars each from you, is your risk is a lot lower than if you've got one borrower who's borrowed 50 million. Of course. For an but, so yeah, because... Just, uh, yeah. They, but they, but even the land developers themselves, who are akin to the apartment yep. developer, oh. the pre-sales are good. The covenants are there. It's very. It's but they're also smaller projects. You tend to develop in fifty, sixty, hundred lot house lot sales. So it's yeah. smaller. The dollars are smaller. And they can delay the the releases a bit more. And, Correct. Yeah. So it's plant. But what it does do is it means that we actually can't produce a lot of homes in Australia because it's still the likes of Metricon going and building house by house by house. Mm. Apartments is the formation of the household can happen a lot more quickly in an urban context. Mm. And so if we look at the numbers for apartments, in the most recent months, mm. you know, we have seen applications for new apartment development around 3,500 apartments. Mm. At the peak, going back to 16, 17, we were run rating 12, 13,000 Apartment. So we've fallen, what, 70, 80%. Mm. Into, and so if you annualise that, you know, we've gone from producing 140,000 apartments at the peak, maybe in a single month that peaked, it was sort of 160,000 mm. run rate, mm. to now being at a point where we probably run rate 35,000, 40,000. So we're, we're producing 100,000 less homes. Yeah. If you produce 100,000 less homes, mm. there's far less need for capital. So the banks... So it's sort of a, a mute point. It's like other banks back, well, back for what, right? right. So they don't need to be back. They don't, and so we actually think now, you know, the, the skill in our space is actually producing where there's going to be a lack of supply in a year's time, two years' time, three years' time, mm-hmm. where you want to go and lend. And so for us, that's been in office a year ago when COVID hit. We saw a lot of stalled office development. We mm-hmm. still foresaw in pockets where there was need, mm-hmm. and we went, you know, into that space. Um, in the last three, four months, we've been much more active in hotels as well. We think right. you know, the hotels will come back. Mm-hmm. Yep. But if we go back three, four years ago, we were yeah, we were quite active in Perth where everyone said, Perth's dead, mining cycle's over, mm. stop building all new apartments. And we did the, the forecast and said, there's going to be a lack of supply here. Mm. And I'm obviously telling you a positive story. You know, most people don't yeah. come in and, <laughs> and sort of tell you, you know, necessarily all, all their ones. bad ones. But, <laughs> yeah. but, you know, it was obvious to us that all of this potential supply in Perth wasn't going to happen. No one wanted to lend. And Perth is now the tightest housing market in the country. Yep. It's that simple. You know, if you don't produce. So Australian population growth, you know, we've been run rating what, over the last decade, 1.4, 1.5% in terms of you know population growth yeah. so somewhere between three and four hundred thousand people yep. this year where the last year's numbers we were 1.2 so we were down a bit mm. lots of question marks about what migration is going to look like mm. but you're still probably going to grow at one percent so we're still going to add 250,000 Australians mm. you add 250,000 Australians you need another hundred thousand houses yep. plus the repair and recycle of existing so mm. if we undersupply for a while We'll we'll have issues. So the good news for everyone that owns a home is that the lack of supply in many areas is is still there, and we're not seeing. We we just can't build enough single dwelling homes Mm. at the pace because of the nature of our labour market. You know, we have a we have a a highly structured labour market, an expensive labour market. So to build lots of houses and apartments quickly Quickly. doesn't apartments you can build quickly, houses you can't. So that that's the supply side. And it's it's a little bit. when you say that, it's, it's. I guess what you're saying is, if you needed to build 
a thousand apartments, you can build them quickly versus a thousand houses. But but in terms of actual time frame, yeah, to build a house, you can, oh, be, you can be done in six to twelve months. Yeah, yeah, whereas, yeah a, sure. whereas an apartment, you're three years or whatever. But it's a, yeah, yeah, but but you you're but not, know, you don't have manufactured saying. production. Yeah, you yeah, can, yeah, you yeah, can't, yeah, yeah. You can't. You're talking about the. It's sort of like the productivity, so to speak, correct. Uh, is, correct. is far higher. Yeah, yeah. Cor- yeah. Correct. And and in terms of, you know, the, one of the good things about Australia is that occupational health and safety and not many people get mm. injured and all those sort of things. But it means we're a lot slower than the rest of the world. Yes. Mm. So we think, you know, we think apartment supply, which we're now hearing, you know, I was uh, actually before coming in here just talking to some developers in Sydney. They've actually started to see a pickup in pre-sales of apartments in Sydney, right. whereas Melbourne's dead. Mm. Yep. And I think the two cities, you know, if you take the two biggest cities in the country, there's a massive bifurcation. Mm. Spend some time in Sydney, you'll see relative confidence, people getting on with things. You come to Melbourne, it's people are battered and bruised. And I think getting people to have the confidence to go and spend and buy an off-the-plan apartment and have some view of where it's going, mm. it's quite quite different. Mm. Yeah. Yep. And we're seeing that in the numbers. We're seeing that in the demand for borrowing and, and who wants to go in terms of developing well mm. it's fair to say i think our covid hangover is a fair bit longer in melbourne than it is in in sydney as well perhaps so, yeah no doubt yeah. no doubt and and look the interesting thing is the savings rates in australia and all around the world mm. are unprecedented like there's so much money sitting mm. on the sidelines because people didn't spend it mm. um, and i talked about you know we like tourism or hotels that is a place we're playing mm. and that's as simple as Australians as a whole, we spend 35 billion more going overseas mm. than foreigners spend coming to Australia. Yep. So I'm not saying our total spend, the, just the difference is 35 billion. Absolutely. If we, you know, if we travel domestically and we, not even to the extent that people are spending going overseas, but they just get part of the way there, we'll make up for every foreigner coming to Australia and some. Yeah. Um, and so for us, we think things like tourism is easier to identify. It's an air pocket rather than structurally dead. Yeah. We can debate. We're the same in terms of we've, we've polled in sort of once vaccines were out and we've got a copped a lot of flack for it from, but um, I mean, just today, oh, sorry, yesterday they came out with a government, the announcement about all, all the flights that are going to be plundered and yeah. all yeah. this extra government support for that, that sector. Yeah, That's so, magic wand at work, isn't it? Yeah. So for us, we've, we've been financing some hotels, completed hotels and, yep. and the like. A- again, it's not as challenging decision for us as is the owner you know we're lending 60 percent of the end value mm. um, but the other thing you look at all physical buildings in australia we've recently had the enterprise bargaining agreement between the unions and the building companies mm. and we look like we've got four or five percent wage inflation locked in for construction workers for mm. the next five years mm. The cost of building is not coming down. So replacement cost of buildings is not coming down. So the only thing that when we look at these things that can give is the land value yeah. because the, the built form is not going to get cheaper. Mm. Yep. You know, the changes in supply chain, less reliance on China because we've had some hiccups over COVID that things don't turn up. So there needs to be some alternatives, expensive labour force. Um, so a building's not getting cheaper. Mm. Land obviously can go down to mm. reflect supply demand issues. But... Yeah. But generally, you'd say the built form of a building's not going to fall yeah. and the endemic use is still there. And, and it's, it's probably coming back to what you were saying before as well, isn't it, that about the productivity side, I guess. If if you're running it centrally and you said we need to produce all these houses, we need to go out and produce another 500,000 houses, you could do prefabs and all these other you know ways of getting stuff done, but that's not what happens. When people buy a house, they're like, no, 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 I want this even if you're with a metricon, you're like, yes, I want this house, but I want this change and that change and that change, which means 
again, just slows it down, doesn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, Metricon build 4,000 homes a year, not mm. 100,000. Like, it's, they just can't mm. can't do that. Whereas a really big apartment developer, you know, we're looking at some proposed apartments where in one precinct they're going to build 2,000 apartments. Yeah, it's it's possible mm. um, to get it to get it done. Mm. Very good. We'll look mindful of your time, Adrian. Um, I have just an, it was a lovely segue talking about um, construction uh, wages. Just just quickly, your thoughts on inflation. We've got a couple of charts up from our um, our predictions, and I think we used the term air pocket there, and there's sort of a bit well, of a COVID air pocket in inflation, Damien. Yeah, can I actually can I just because given the time I, yeah. and, and we, sorry, we're probably, not, go too not, probably not expertise of yours, but I just want to get a quick question in on commodities before we before we go. Given that's so. Um, We've obviously we've seen prices spike, you know, significantly higher in, in most commodities, and there's there is to me there's a little bit of a circular reference in that they're sort of saying, hey, look at this inflation coming, therefore financial investors are jumping into commodities and commodity prices are going up and they're going, you know, there's then then they're saying, hey, look at inflation from you know, energy prices going up or look at inflation from copper prices going up and going, yeah, but you caused that like this, you can't, you can't. Sure. <laughs> and so there's um, are you looking upon. Are, yeah. we in a, are we in a super cycle or, or uh, we... Look, there's a, there's a saying in commodity markets and we have a commodity fund as well where we trade agricultural commodities. Mm. Basically, you know, high prices in commodities will be solved by high prices. Yes. And the same is true of low prices. Yeah. Mm. Supply demand, particularly in food, so let's start with the area that can react the, the most quickly. Yep. Um, if the prices are really good mm. for corn, wheat... People will plant mm. corn and wheat, pillar to post. Yep. It'll be everywhere. They'll spend a lot. Mm. Now, you need the weather to come to the party as well, so it's not mm. – but they tend to respond. Yep. Oil is pr- probably – in copper at the other extreme, they're probably 10, 15-year cycles. Mm. So you have to look at what's going on. You know, the, the oil price moving in recent times mm. is a combination of really a couple of factors. Mm. Basically, the, the oil industry overproducing shale oil – um, and really damaging investment mm. to bring it on. So it sort of led to lesser supply. OPEC came to the table and said, we have to cut supply because we just can't balance the budget in Russia, Saudi, etc. Without doing that, you then get hit by some exogenous factors such as the weather in Texas and others, yep. and suddenly you get that shock. Those same factors are always true in every inflation um, push throughout history, right? It's when the global supply chain in one form or another breaks down at the same time where you've had the underinvestment. Mm. Yep. And so commodities has not been the place to be the last several years, you know, two, yep. three, four years. Mm. But you look at... Last one year it has. Oh, yeah, well, yeah look, last, I think yeah, I think if months. you go back in terms of the performance... But, oh, yeah, over a longer in, period of time. In yeah, general, yeah. really since... Um, you know, since 2011-12 where China turned the tap off, you know, they're overstimulated yep. mm. and we've had a more benign cycle and so we've had lack of investment. The joy in Australia with iron ore has come that exogenous fact where Brazilian production has been hampered by, you well, know, by collapsing disruption, collapsing. Or, so it's, yeah. that, it's always, if you look at the inflation shocks of the 70s, mm. it's that combination. You need the combination of money printing, mm. um, mismanagement by governments and central banks with an exogenous shock, the, mm. you know, the Middle Eastern crisis and things like that. Yep. And so to get ongoing inflation, we need some exogenous shock. Otherwise, supply-demand mm. will balance. Mm. And so we need the supply chain to be disrupted. Mm. The one thing I would say about commodities, to me, 
everyone focuses on what the Fed's doing in the US because we get so much data. One thing that's very clear, and even the current, this week, the news out of China, the five, new five-year plan, China is very hawkish. Like, they are not going to overstimulate mm. the way that they did post-financial crisis. Yep. Western world seems to be no end to it. Mm. China, which um, obviously is... is more important in the commodity cycle, yeah. seems to be much more focused in not producing oversupply of of um, housing, factories, um, so very commodity-intensive product. Yeah. Um, they'll maintain their growth, but they seem to be much more hawkish and they're actually pulling the reins in a bit. Yeah. And it's not surprising when that happens. If you look through history, equity markets start to sell off. So the Chinese stock market selling off at the time when the system in China is starting to contract Mm. That monetary supply, that's not inflationary to yeah. me. So I would, I, I think betting on inflation um, right now, short term, doesn't look like look like a good bet. Mm. Um, what so is is much more? So when you say short term, you're saying betting on sustained inflation. No, I, not, I think betting I mean, on no, I think betting on inflation to be a, a market phenomenon the next twelve months right. or, mm. or year is not the mm. driver. Mm. Um, I think. It's because there's still a lot of slack in the labour market, in factory output. Yep. But as we turn out of, you know, we, we come well and truly out of the sort of pandemic, mm. I think it's really clear that from the RBA to the Fed to every central bank, they will overstimulate for too long, mm. unquestionably. Yeah. And so there's going to be a pain trade at the end. Um, and we could be five years away from that. Yeah, but yeah. I think I think it's less one-way traffic. You know, the sell-off in the tech stocks, mm. the growth stocks here in Australia... It's a shot across the bow, right? Saying, "Hey, this is—they are incredibly richly priced, mm. so therefore, it's not going to take much to to, to yeah. bring them down in one way one way traffic." So, the world's harder, you know. When when inflation when values are so rich, mm. it just you're not going to get massive performance because we're no longer going to get that multiple expansion equities. We're not going to get cap rate compression in property. Yep. So. You've just got to rely on good old earnings. Yeah, I know. Yeah, which which a lot of those don't earnings. What's that? Correct. You have to yeah, look up the definition of that one. Yeah. yeah. Um, Very good. So on the commodities side, though, so are you so you, so agricultural stuff you're looking at? Are you doing anything in metals or um, or energy? We're doing so. We are active in power. Yep. Um, it's the only place in our entire business at this point in time where we're applying equity. So we're actually building two power plants in Darwin. Right. One solar farm and one gas-fired power plant. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we like the power sector because the politics is so screwed up. Yep. So, again, if you come back to our basic premise of do we have expertise and do I understand it? Well, mm. we, you know, we believe so. We've been ticking away at it for a long time. Mm. And is there a lack of capital being ap- applied? And so we would say in segments of the power industry, there's massive underinvestment going on because it's so confusing um, and so much policy uncertainty. Correct. Yeah. And and the reason we're in Darwin and not in Sydney or Melbourne or Brisbane mm. is because that market doesn't sit on the national electricity market. So it doesn't have quite the same politics. Mm. It's a smaller market. It's friendlier in some ways. Mm. And we're also gone to a market where the incumbent power producer is a state-owned power producer. Mm. Um, so there's no, you know, no other competition and they're quite... Um, open to working collaboratively and so it makes sense but a lack of investment nonetheless in the space because people are sort of sitting there and saying it's it's too hard so we always like to go where it's we like to be in this the i guess 
relatively simple investments yeah. in places where people say it's too hard to be. Yeah, That's yeah. sort of our Excellent. ethos at the moment. Great one to finish on and a nice lead into um, our, our special guest next week, Ross Garneau, who is a big power fan as well. We might have to get might have to get you back, Adrian, at some point to um, to chat around uh, the power investment space. We do quite a lot of work on energy. Um, so Yeah, no, we're happy happy to do that. And and Ross, obviously his background in China as well. Mm. Very yeah. You know, intriguing so you know obviously what's going on in, in that that part of the world but but yeah look power sector there's you know for us power and water so water is an adjacency to agriculture mm. they're two elements where the politics is scaring investment more than anything else yep. and so and it makes it really intriguing yeah wonderful uh a quick investment outlook damien if you uh, yeah you yeah just quickly yeah so just want to highlight um I think coming back to to what you're saying is we're, we're, we've got a similar view, I think, on, in terms of inflation in that over the longer term, we're not expecting inflation. I do think in the next six months, we're going to print some really high headline numbers, just which is just base effect, um, you know, low, low, and there's, and, you know, oil prices doubled and all these other factors. So I think there's going to be some big headline numbers. And my view is that this is going to be the, 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 the 10 minutes of sunshine for the people who've been talking about hyperinflation for years and years and years, and that... Um, they're going to get the the front and centre, and so I guess what we're we're actually looking for bargains as as that comes up, if you know what I mean. So so if it doesn't happen, well, it doesn't happen. But but we're actually expecting that there'll be a bit more noise around um, inflation. You know, we, it's one thing for a central bank to say we're going to keep inflation, we're going to keep rates low for an extended period of time, and you've got one percent inflation. If you're printing headline inflation of three or four, just for purely base effects and and weird stuff going on. Um, there's, I think it'll be the market will start just pricing in naturally pricing in a bit more, and so um, yeah, so we're looking at that there's an opportunity. The flip side is what you spoke about is saying, well, if if it is unlimited taps and um, Biden comes out with a five trillion dollar uh, infrastructure stimulus and you know all this other stuff, then maybe inflation is coming. But um, I think at the moment we're we're on that same part as you are going. Yes, supply chains will recover. Um, there's lots of slack out there for in the employment side. Uh, with a much bigger services economy now than what it used to be, and and also that the stuff that got shut down was mainly services, and the stuff that managed to keep going was a lot of that was manufacturing. And so, um, once services starts coming back, there's that lid, extra lid on inflation as well. And so, um, yeah, so we're looking for opportunities over the next six months to to um, take the opposite side of that trade. So I will, certainly wouldn't be saying I'm out buying growth stocks today, but I'm certainly going to be looking for growth stocks that are getting hit too hard, and. Um, uh, but but with a, with a with a real view to pricing because there are there are definitely segments of the market that are just priced fantastic companies I love the outlook love the, love everything about them but the price is just so high that I just can't see how they could possibly do it mm-hmm. but um yeah at much lower prices you know there's plenty of companies on our shopping list excellent thanks Damien thank you to you Adrian for coming Pleasure. in and yeah sharing uh, we've, we've gone a little bit over time as no well problem. so been, you've been very gracious um, just a little bit of information uh, for our listeners on on yourself and how they might follow some of your work and perhaps what an ideal client could be for yourselves yeah we're uh, Merrick's Capital you know, we we service the institutional fund manager but also individuals um, pretty much through their wealth manager so um, you know, we have one fund the partners fund which is basically all our best ideas um, you can find some information on that at our website you know, www.merrickscapital.com yep um, where we you know tend to talk about our best ideas and you can find out some information on our fund and but you know as I said really for us at this point in time as the world gets more complex 
we're trying to keep it simple, you know, senior secured lending against hard assets mm. that if the inflation genie does get out of the bottle, I'm wrong, they should be protected. Mm. Um, but look, we just think if you can generate an eight odd percent return, and we've been doing a bit better than that, but if we can generate that type of return with not too much risk, it's a great place to hide. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll get some links in the show notes for, for anyone to those uh, as well. Absolutely. Great. Yeah, it's great to have you on and uh, look forward to getting you back on soon. Thanks, Tim. Wonderful. Uh, we'll jump across to our viewer question of the week. So um, feel free to drop into the YouTube uh, chat. Where do you turn for alternative investments? I've got a sneaking suspicion uh, one that will come up that we haven't covered today might be uh, cryptocurrency, but it'll be interesting to see what our... Uh, <laughs> what our I'm, I'm uh, assuming cryptocurrency doesn't meet your, uh, your definition of hard asset. No, it's, it's, probably, it's probably the extreme opposite, the opposite. I would say. Yeah, exactly. well, there you go. But, uh, so happy to, happy to hear your thoughts from our, from our listenership. As I mentioned before, coming up next week, we continue our uh, run of special guests with renowned economist Ross Garneau. Uh, Ross is coming in to share with us some of the highlights from his recently released book, Reset, which focuses on the opportunities that lie ahead for the post-pandemic rebuild of the Australian economy and how now is the time to embrace new thinking to ensure prosperity into this century. So tune in next week, Thursday the 18th of March at 12.30pm for what promises to be an enthralling chat with Ross. And of course, we will be saving plenty of time for your questions in the live stream. Thanks again for all of those that have watched in live for another great episode and I hope you've taken away some great ideas. And if you haven't already, feel free to click like on the video now to give us some feedback. Uh, if you'd like to see more of our content, head on over to nucleuswealth.com forward slash content to start to date with news from us. Follow us on social media. And finally, if you know anyone who'd get anything out of today's episode, let them know about it, share with a friend and help our show grow. Thanks again for tuning in from myself, Tim Fuller and the team, and we look forward to catching you at the next one. Cheers.